0: Hi everyone, back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting.
1: Unscripted, Peter, I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. All right, listeners, we are back with another ESEC lending Insights. And today I got the driver's chair because Mr. Basler is in the sidecar next to me. But luckily he's with us because last time we had this external guest on the podcast, it was just Jim and myself. So I'm sure that the level of intelligent questions will definitely rise today with Basler in the sidecar. So Mr. Chesum from S&P Global Market Intelligence is with us. Matt is a director of securities finance at S&P. And when did we last speak, Matt? Maybe some timbre time
2: frame yeah i think it was we were looking at the first half of 2022 revenues
1: Okay. And so here we are, January 9th, as we're recording this, we'll probably release it later in the week. And we're now looking at the full year of 2022 and all of the data that S&P Global tracks for the securities lending market and the industry. And I don't know how much of a look forward you'll want to also engage on as we look into 2023, but really I think this is more about how did things end up? How did the market fare? Who were the winners? Who were the losers? I've seen headlines that it was a great year, but was it a great year for all? Things like that. And and maybe we could go through asset classes as well. And I don't know, Jim or Peter, do you have any questions maybe to kick Matt off before he, he gives us the high level points and his market stats?
3: I would just forewarn Matt that they wrote me into predictions almost every podcast and it comes back to bite me almost every time. So tread lightly. Yeah, we'll keep the nice and general. I would add one thing, Brooke, to your question, which is
0: Is this
1: going to be about Jim's hair?
0: No. Oh, okay. it's a serious comment. Okay. This is more for Matt about what are the data that beneficial owners should pay attention to for thinking around trends and things getting better or getting worse, that
2: type of thing for their own internal organizations? I think that's a very good question because what you tend to find is that we look at all of this data from a market level and not all beneficial owners benefit to the same degree because they're in different jurisdictions and therefore they have different regulations to adhere to. They also have different collateral sets. They have different program guidelines. So when we're saying What we see taking place in the market, we do get some questions from some agent lenders saying that they're getting questions from their beneficial owners stating why aren't they seeing such a brilliant year that we're seeing as a market as a whole. So what I would definitely suggest is not the return to lendable, but perhaps the return to the on loan. I think that's a good metric for beneficial owners to always look at. And I also think all beneficial owners should partake in some sort of benchmarking function. ISLA provide quite strict guidelines around SLPM, which is Security Lending Performance Measurement Guidelines, and beneficial owners need to be aware of them and make sure that their agent lenders are adhering to them to ensure that any benchmarking that they carry out going forward is done on a light-for-light basis. So I think return to on loan, that's a powerful metric to look at, especially for fund managers, and also making sure that the data that they're looking at on a regular basis is benchmarked in the correct manner.
3: I think it's interesting, Matt, pointing to return to on loan. So return to on loan is essentially average fee of what's on loan, right? For a fund manager. And when I look at return to on loan and return to lendable, it's through the lens of valuation of a portfolio, either for somebody who we lend for when looking at new markets or somebody who we are trying to bring onto the platform as a lender. And so by looking at return to on loan, if I'm a lender, that gets rid of all the dilution that may happen because of new supply gets rid of all the dilution you might see in performance based on unique program parameters for me. Is that how you look at that? I think that makes sense. I just haven't thought about it that way.
1: Yeah, I
2: think so. And if you take into account your whole portfolio, you're never going to be lending 100%. I mean, you look at US 40 app funds, they can only lend up to 33% of their total holdings anyway. So looking at return to lendable across their program is pretty pointless, to be honest. They need to look at the returns that they're generating from the stock that they've got on loan. Therefore, they'll be able to properly quantify whether the risk reward is appropriate for the type of activity that they're partaking in. Yeah,
3: it's a
2: good way to look at it. But for many years, return to lendable seems to be the metric that everybody looks at from a beneficial owner perspective, but I'm not always sure that it's the most useful.
1: And maybe I can just make the point that I think it's not that lenders should also ignore what they're not getting out, because I think that's still a really useful exercise. It's maybe more just that you're saying when you look at these broad, like you can do like super broad comparisons great year of securities lending performance and someone says, well, gosh, it didn't feel like as good of a year to me. Your point is just that a more direct comparative is pay attention to your return to on loan, but it's not to say that you still shouldn't be seen, you know, are there opportunities that are just being missed in full? And that could also be because of guidelines. It could be because you need to make some changes to your program structure if you're able and it's on a regulatory
2: restriction or limit. Yeah, no, completely agree. I think that's a very good point
1: take us through what the high level takeaways are now that we've done a good baseline of sort of how we should think about this but take us through what the high level baseline is from 2022 and where did the year end up maybe give us the headline the byline and then the bullets in the article
2: sure so let's go for it so i think that we'll all agree that 2022 had a very unique macroeconomic environment. And it seems to have been not only incredibly interesting for the securities finance market, but incredibly useful in terms of setting the appropriate conditions for generating some strong revenues. So I think that just a number of things that I can think of off the top of my head, we've had some aggressive interest rate hikes, not only in value, but in the speed of increases. I think they've been the fastest that have taken place in recent history. We've had an incredibly interesting An active geopolitical backdrop with the war in Ukraine, the prevailing energy crisis in Europe, the hangover from COVID, furlough programs and the impact that that's been having on government borrowing figures. Also, the impact of the zero COVID policy in China as well and how that's been impacting stocks, especially in the APAC region. We've also had seen some of the highest inflation figures since the 70s or 80s. Which is longer than the lifetime of some, but not all of the people on this podcast today. <laughs> I won't name any names. So, you know, we've seen a very active economic environment that hasn't been in place for many years. So, as a result of that, securities financing activity has been very prevalent. There's been lots of opportunities for people in the market to take advantage of pricing differentials. And I think that there's also been a lot more short selling and directional activity in comparison to previous years, given that market indices have been moving up and down rather than just in a single direction upwards. So moving on, all of that has given rise to the best securities finance revenue since the global financial crisis in 2008. So in 2008, there was 13.2 billion in revenues that were generated. And in 2022, there was 12.52 billion generated by the market. So that was a increase of a significant amount on last year, but it also, if we break it down, the second half of 2022, the revenues came in at 6.471 billion, and that's a 17% increase on the second half of 2021, and a 5% increase on the first half of 2022. Now, we've seen those revenues really being generated by four main parts of the market. So U.S. equity specials over 2022 were incredibly strong. They generated a lot of returns for lenders. And there, where we talk about beneficial owners, again, it's pretty hit and miss because you either hold those stocks or you don't. Now, the special market, whilst it's given a lot of value over 2022, I would say that perhaps narrow is the wrong word, but the range of the specials has been fairly constant over the whole year period. When you look at the top revenue generating stocks on a month by month basis, they tend to be the same names.
1: So it's a continued theme of the haves and have nots. You either have those really hot specials and you're making great money or you don't and you're not seeing the same success that those that have them.
2: Yeah, that's correct. So there's it
1: still has a lot of concentration in 2022, which is Jim, what you saw as well from a trading perspective, correct?
3: Yeah, we see the same trend in our book. Yeah, expected
2: to hear that from Matt. So U.S. equities generated $4.8 in revenues over 2022. July was the highest revenue generating month of the year for U.S. equity specials, which I think is quite strange because I would have thought that most people go on holiday July, August, September. So Q3 isn't always the busiest month of the year for revenues across any market, but in the U.S. and across most of the securities finance activity, Q3 was really the standout quarter. Is that what you saw as well, Jim, from a trading perspective? Was it busier or was there just more value from your perspective? The market was headed higher and new shorts were coming into the market. So that makes
3: total sense. Yeah, it's usually quieter, but we typically, and I guess hedge funds had it right, that we, after the summer, things eased almost on a consistent basis through year end or right until end of November. And so I think it's just more shorts coming in. They're still there. I think what you're talking about, Matt, in terms of trends in the market started back in July, which was more shorts plenty of shorts. And it was because the market was rising. And so what we've seen, we at ESEC is our book sees more demand from the street after the market has risen period over period, call it week over week or month over month, we see demand come in. So it makes sense that that's the behavior we should expect now is as markets rise, you're going to see shorts come in just because of the varying opinions of where the market's headed based on all the macro events you talked about.
2: Sure. I mean, it comes as no surprise. If you look at the top 10 revenue generating stocks over 2022, they were all U.S. equities. I mean, in that Mm -hmm. top 10, there was one U.S. ETF, which was HYG, which was a massive earner over the year as well. But all of the other top 10 revenue generating names were U.S. equities. The EV sector has been particularly popular over 2022. It's been heavily borrowed. You've got Lucid Group, you've got Fisker, even Tesla came back into fashion at some point during the back of the year. It wasn't a top 10 name, but... Just that sector in general has created a lot of value for lenders through the year. Later on in the year, we saw software companies such as Marathon Digital coming back in. They were popular borrows across the market. And that was really down to the collapse in the price of Bitcoin. I think it was down about 65% over the year, give or take a couple of percentage points. And there were obviously the problems with the crypto exchanges. They really impacted some of the companies that either have Bitcoin holdings or some of those companies that support the crypto markets as well. So moving on from there, the other area of interest that we saw over 2022 was really ETPs, so exchange traded products. There was $847 million in revenues generated by exchange traded products over the year. 725 million of those revenues were U.S. ETPs, 93 million European ETPs and 18 million in Asian based ETPs. And so you can really see that it was the us etfs that really dominated those figures it was the us etfs that really dominated that market which is really no surprise given their popularity amongst us investors had Um, you
1: just said though matt that the uh when you were talking about the top 10 names in the us you commented on hyg was that just the only one in the top 10 or or did i misunderstand that
2: no so said that was the only etf that was in the top 10.
1: Okay. So the rest of the ETF activity, which is still significant, fell outside of the top 10 concentrated traditional security specials.
2: Yeah. When you look at ETF specials over the year, there were really two main areas that were of relevance or of interest to the borrowing community. So ETFs, especially US ETFs, they really did benefit from the collapsing corporate bond prices over the year as interest rates went up. So did the yields on the corporate bonds because the prices fell. So I think there was a lot of borrowing for directional activity because the ETF obviously gives you good exposure to an index and it's an easier way of shortening index rather than looking up the individual holdings. But also, I think that some of the other interest came from the volatility that was seen in the equity markets as well, because you had large and mid cap ETFs that were quite heavily borrowed as well. And if you looked at the top 10 list of ETF borrows, then you're going to have really the corporate bond indices or trackers, anything that's high yield related or anything that's related to either a large or mid cap equity index. So Russell 2000, SPY. The S&P 500 was a very popular borrower as well, and that's really down to the volatility seen in the equity markets. And I would imagine some more directional activity that took place from an index basis rather than on an individual stock name. So ARC was another ETF that saw particular strong demand to borrow, and that really comes down to the sell-off in the tech stops that happened in the second half of the year, and that was reflected by the downward move in the NASDAQ as well.
3: Yeah, we saw that to all the ARC products. It's, uh, I think you're talking about ARKK. Which yes, is correct. And just seemed to be an easier method or an easier avenue to get short a basket of stocks without the high risk of paying insane rates on them or getting the supply pulled and having to cover at an inopportune time. So we continue to see whether it's sector funds or bespoke baskets of funds that have a common thread or stocks that have a common thread. We see every morning we get demand for that. So it's just a matter of, again, the haves and have nots. Much of our client base is involved in the underlying as opposed to
2: the ETF. So it isn't a supply that We are deep in at the moment, but we see the demand for sure. And I think ETFs, you know, it's definitely a growing part of the securities finance markets, given the fact that you can lend the wrapper as well as the underlying stocks. I mean, it's very beneficial for beneficial owners to be involved in securities lending from an ETF perspective as well.
1: Yeah. So if the U.S. market and the concentrated specials is the first and exchange traded products, the second big revenue contributor of which a lot of those ended up falling to the U.S. market. Talk to us about the third and the fourth big areas of revenue driving.
2: So, really, that's anything in the fixed income market. So, corporate bonds was the third. So, 2022 really was the year for corporate bond borrowing. Headline revenues were 963 million for the year, which is an amazing 81% increase on 2021. Now, the revenues increased throughout the year and they topped 98 million in the month of December alone. Q4 was the highest revenue generated month of the year for any corporate bond borrowing activity. And the trend in average fees also followed the trend that we're seeing in revenues. So average fees for corporate bonds increased steadily over the year as well. Fees started 2022 at around 29 basis points average and finished in December at a 46 basis point average. So every month, apart from January, showed a 50 to 75 percent increase on the same month in relation to the average fee when compared to with 2021. So the top borrows in the corporate bond markets were a lot of the private placement lockups and a lot of the convertible bond issues. But also, I think from a market or from a borrowing perspective, what you tended to find with corporate bonds was there were some specials and you can look at the top 10 revenue names, but the amount of revenues that they generated compared to the market as a whole is pretty small. So that to me suggests that the actual borrowing activity behind corporate bonds as an asset class was a lot greater and a lot more widespread than in any other asset classes that we've been looking at up until now. I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the movement in the prices. There was a lot of directional opportunities that took place and also general market liquidity in corporate bonds isn't always great during the best of times. So when markets are heading further south and there's a lot of volatility, then there can sometimes be issues in terms of general liquidity in these assets as well, so I think that that's probably what spurred a lot more borrowing, and that's what's pushed the fees up and ultimately pushed the revenues up as well.
3: When you look at corporate bonds, one thing I've always wanted to look at from a data set standpoint, but don't have the ability to roll it up that way. But if you think about the cap structure; many of these issuers have multiple issues out there. And with the difference being coupon and tenor, but it's still the same credit. So if you think about top names generating revenue in the equity space, that's you have one choice typically, and that's that line of stock. It might be interesting to lump together all the corporate bonds by issuer and the revenue generated from the short there. That actually, if you're thinking about it as value to where do I set my short, how do I do it, synthetic versus uh, traditional, and maybe there's value in that piece, which is the cap structure of Apple
2: or comcast or whomever who has 20 issues as opposed to one well along the same lines what would be interesting is if you could look at corporate bond borrowing first by sector what you tend to find is there's a lot of real estate companies that issue bonds over equities and therefore they have lots of different issues and they trade incredibly special at the moment i would suggest just because of the dramatic increase that everybody's seen in interest rates yeah i agree so following on from the corporate bonds is government bonds now government bonds always increase in in activity and increase in attractiveness and 2022 was no exception so fee-based revenue for government bond lending was 1.85 billion over 2022 and that's a 14 and percent increase on 2021 now like corporate bonds revenues continue to grow month on month over the year average fees also increased to 20 basis point average in december and they started off the year at a 13 basis point average the same that balances and utilisation decreased slowly throughout the year, but those decreases were single digit percentage points rather than the double digit percentage point increases that you've seen in the revenues and in the fees. Now, from our data, we see that short data government bonds were particularly strong borrows. They had a lot of demand. And what was interesting and what's a great story for the securities finance markets in general is that we saw a lot of demand and a lot of boring activity take place in gilts during October, September, October, when there was the LDI crisis over here in the UK. And I think that that really shows some of the strength in the values of the securities finance, markets within the global financial markets because that's where the added liquidity came from, right. to ensure that market participants could function as normally as possible within those adverse market conditions.
1: Yeah, that's one of the points that people have. They're just generalist anti-sediment towards securities lending. It's always helpful to see examples of that where the market liquidity does make a, a real impact in terms of what's available in the
2: lending markets. Looking at last year in general, there are key takeaways. You tended to find that activity was pretty steady in Europe, APAC as well. Revenues were perhaps down single digits, but not by too much, nothing too dramatic. Those markets were were pretty steady. I would suggest that we saw more value in specials activity in Europe heading in towards the end of the year. Whether that's something that's going to continue in 2023, I'm not too sure. But we've definitely seen a pickup in activity towards December in EMEA. I would also just suggest that in Asia Pacific, if markets stabilize and if the economy and geopolitical situation stabilizes, then hopefully there might be a little bit more activity taking place in Taiwan, which seems to be a massive revenue driver for the APAC region. If some of the short selling restrictions come off in South Korea as well, then that's going to drive revenues higher in APAC as well. One of the standout markets over 2022 in APAC was Australia. That was by far the strongest out of any. And I think that a lot of the value there has been driven by mining companies and natural resource stocks. There's a few financial companies that went special as well that drove the revenues higher there. But when you look at the revenue numbers compared to 2021, there's some definite strength being shown in borrowing activity and value that can be had from the lending Australian assets as well.
1: So then if we think about heading into 23 and those four major areas of where the revenue came from primarily, or at least the top revenue, starting with the US, going into ETFs, corporate bonds, governments, what do we think are the ongoing trends and maybe your data, as you saw, you, know, you talked a lot about how some of the data on the corporates and the fixed income sort of the fees continue to climb through month by month, things like that. But high level. I know that, Jim, we've chatted about the U.S. market. While specials are still concentrated, we're starting to see a little bit of a broader diversification or more depth of specials generically. And and we would hope and expect that that will continue this year. Is that still a fair prediction on your end?
3: Yeah. But keep in mind, my world is our set of assets that I'm looking at. And so it's Matt may disagree with that or agree with it. I'm not sure. But given what we have today, which we auction and trade traditionally, yeah, it definitely seems to be deeper breadth of specials that we're having. Are you seeing similar depth of specials growing in the US?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's an interesting one because we've seen from July where specials revenue for the US in particular came in at $472 million from our data set and from the data that we can see. But then down to November, it was down to about 200 million. So we can see that the actual revenues coming from specials in particular has been declining. In terms of the number of specials out there, the balances that we see have been falling as well so the special balances and we class anything that's trading over 500 basis points is special so it really depends on where your buckets are as well i would imagine but we're seeing special balances and special revenues decline heading in towards the end of the year but like i said previously a lot of those names that were special are still very special so mm-hmm. a lot of those names that everybody is aware of amc gamestop bed bath and beyond a lot of those stocks that it's generated a lot of revenues for beneficial industry in 2022. They're not going anywhere. One of the
3: functions that might be at play in terms of reduced revenue, high watermark compared to now or somewhere in between, might be, I'm guessing at this based on what we've seen for our client base and specifically for our US dollar cash clients, is that you can pay up a little bit more, which means you can generate less intrinsic value from a GC trade, even go negative with it if you think OBFR is that inflection point to spend the cash and in this higher rate environment we found that what we've seen is balances up and our average fee coming down if you're looking at the entire book. But if you look at just 500 plus or better, it seems to have a different profile. And I was wondering if, do you guys think about it that way when you look at overall metrics? Because you speak intrinsic value only, correct? Yeah. It would only be the US market where that would have an effect, but I wonder if that plays effect on average fees. And is it something you would think is worth separating the two and running them separately to look at the metrics to see what's actually happening underneath the high level
2: it's always interesting to know exactly what's going on in the market and to get as granular as you can, to be honest. And then, you know, it's easier for decision-making purposes going forward. It's always more interesting for beneficial owners as well, because they need to know how to position their, their programs to generate the best value in the best risk environment. So the more information that they have to hand at more granular level, surely that's going to be beneficial to them. Looking at these other areas heading into 2023, I mean, there's already been a lot of talk in the press about investors seeing more value in corporate bonds from a cash investor perspective. Prices seem to have fallen to a point where investors seem to be buying them up again. That's been reported widely in the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. So perhaps borrowing demand is going to ease there. It also depends on the liquidity profile of some of these corporate bonds going forward, I would imagine. And what happens to interest rates, it's been widely announced as well, that interest rates are going to carry on increasing, but perhaps at lower levels. What impact that has on overall borrowing demand, I would imagine that perhaps that has, potential to slow some of the borrowing demand in corporate bonds as well and then looking at government bonds in particular if central banks start engaging in their quantitative tightening programs then i would imagine that there'd be more liquidity coming into the market therefore perhaps there's less need to borrow so many government bonds but given the volatility in markets and the collateral requirements that that dictates as a result that might offset some of the added liquidity coming into the markets. I mean, it's difficult to know without having a proper crystal ball, but I suppose you could argue either way. Jim's already warned me not to make too many predictions because you're going to come back and tell me what I got wrong. Well,
1: that's what makes these things fun and exciting. So don't let him warn you off of that.
2: If we move into recession in Europe as well, then you can imagine that there might be some more rights issues coming out of some of the European names. There could be some more corporate activity taking place in general, and therefore that always increases the revenue because there's the arbitrage opportunities from the rights when they pay out compared to the underlying equity moves as well. So I think that there's definitely potential for 2023 to be another bumpy year, especially if nothing really changes in the economy. And inflation remains stubborn and the levels that we're seeing at the moment. I think that interest rates are going to be key to... What happens in the equity world, as soon as they start to slow, then perhaps all that money that's been sitting on the sideline is going to be put back to work and equity markets are going to rise higher again. But who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Let's come back a half-year review and I'll tell you how wrong I was. Properly balanced prediction. Can I ask an one fair question, maybe, Matt, of
0: your prior life? Sure. You in your introductory remarks about benchmarking, because I'm often in the room with beneficial owners talking about this. And because SP is a service that helps with benchmarking, how would you advise beneficial owners to think about it? It's a topic that's challenging because everyone can say that they're outperforming somewhere. And if you're a beneficial owner, how often are you looking at benchmarking for your performance? And what are you looking at? Are you looking at the big picture? Or are you also going to drill down to your top 10 earners? Do you have any one or two bullets from
2: your experience that would be helpful to beneficial owners as they think about this topic yeah i think the main metric that you've got to look at is the return back to the portfolio you need to be sure that the risk that you're taking is being correctly rewarded you need to ensure and benchmark not only your program how it runs at the moment but you need to look at new opportunities you need to see that you need to benchmark changes in risk profile versus potential changes in revenues generated as well i would say that Looking at that is far more useful to have a proper understanding of the potential of your program compared to what your program is actually making. How, if you move the dial slightly one way or the other, how that's going to impact your overall revenues and the risk profile of the program that you run. I'd also say that you also, from my perspective, having worked at a long-only asset manager there were misunderstandings around the reasons why stocks were borrowed and therefore short selling was always an active consideration in our decision making process. So what revenues are being generated in terms of how much stock have you got out on loan compared to how much are you making i would say that from our perspective before we were very much focused on the least amount of stock out on loan for the most amount of revenue so if there's any way that you can calibrate or change your program to ensure that you're getting the biggest baggage for your buck that's definitely the benchmarking that i would engage in rather than just looking at agent across agent and saying well who can generate me the most revenues i think that's a, a fairly blunt way of looking at the bigger picture i think that you need to really know what you're trying to achieve from your program, and then look at the appropriate types of benchmarking that you can engage in to ensure that you're hitting those targets and that you're meeting those requirements.
0: I mean, that's a really good point. The whole concept of what's your goal, right? Cause all programs are not created equal. So taking that as the first jumping off point, I think is critical point.
1: Well, it's also about thinking about it from the perspective of how can you maximize revenue per utilization? So, if you're going to have something out, you obviously need to make sure you're doing it under the risk profile that you're okay with. But how do you make sure you're maximizing it within that risk profile? For every unit of utilization that you have, you want to be making the most revenue that you should be on a comparative basis.
0: And then you also want to make sure the noise is at a minimum as far as comparing yourself to others that may have more flexibility, whether that's collateral or other limits that may be advantageous to one group versus the comparative set. So I think that's always been a challenge in the benchmarking space, right?
1: Definitely. Good. Well, so Matt, thank you again for joining us. I hope it's not a full six months until we can regroup with you in this forum, but at a minimum, we will do it then. How about that? We'll commit to doing a half year on 2023 update, but we'll look forward to keeping in touch with you in the meantime. And if there's other topics that are worthy of discussing in this forum, then let's do it. So thank you again, Matt.
2: Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Really appreciate it. Great to meet up with you guys once again. We always miss you, Matt. I'm not too sure about that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's hope 2023 is as successful as it was for 2022 for everybody as well. And like, it's always good to see when the markets or when the revenue numbers tick up for everybody, especially the beneficial owners. Yes. We're
1: hoping for even more success in 23. How about
2: that? Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Go okay. Ahead. Well, have a good evening, everybody. Have a good afternoon. Bon appetit And speak Thank to you Matt. soon. Cheers. All the best. Bye-bye. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something
0: interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities.
1: And friends, don't forget to subscribe to ESEC Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There's no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening.